0: Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Write Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Sarah Nelson is a medical writer and founder of Green Pen Solutions Limited. She first came to my attention via Peter Llewellyn of Networkpharma.com a community that supports networking among folks working in and around the global pharmaceutical industry, including in medcoms, specialist medical education, and medical publishing. Incidentally, Peter is a member of the Wright Medicine community and presented some of his ideas at a Wright CME clinic in the spring. But back to Sarah, who is a leading mentor and trainer for medical writers all over the world. Her mission is to encourage more medical writers into Medcoms and help them create a sustainable career path that builds on their personal strengths. Sarah's wide-ranging knowledge comes from over 17 years as a medical writer, her experience leading large editorial teams, and from mentoring writers in over 20 agencies across the Medcoms industry. In today's episode, we focus on the importance of training for medical writers, a subject that is dear to my heart, as well as medical writing tests, Sarah's five pillars of medical writing, and the impact of artificial intelligence in medcoms. And we also touch on differences between medcoms in general and the specific requirements of accredited CME and CE, at least in the United States. For more specific information on how CME and CE is changing in Europe and in the United Kingdom, check out episode 55 of the Right Medicine podcast with Eugene Posniak of the European CME Forum. And if you are ready to explore specialist training opportunities in CME, then check out Right Medicine's course and coaching offerings, as well as Right CME Pro, a premium professional development membership. Links are in the show notes. And now let's get into today's episode with Sarah Nelson. Hello and welcome, Sarah. Hi there. Good to see you. We are on different time zones. There's at least eight hours between us today. You're coming to the end of your day as uh, I'm in the middle of of my day. so I appreciate you taking time to have this conversation at the end of your day. No
1: problem. I'm happy to be here.
0: <laughs> well, I think a lot of listeners who are already medical writers will probably aware a little bit aware of who you are and and what you do, but I would love it if you could start our conversation by just sharing a little bit about who you are and your journey into medical writing. Yes,
1: yeah, I'd be happy to. So most people probably know me today as a writer and a mentor for medical writers. And it's been quite, I'd say, a long journey to get here. I started, I guess, my transition into becoming a medical writer around 2006, when I was a researcher in a lab in Boston, actually, in the States. Uh, I had a really great time there. Uh, I spent about six years living in Boston, but it became clear to me that I wasn't really cut out for a long-term career in research. So I was looking for different options, really, what I could do with my science background. Um, And I wanted to move back to the UK as well. So I was looking at different things I could do. And much like many other people who get into medical writing, I kind of stumbled across it. I had a friend who you've had on the podcast, actually, uh, Barvel Sharbell. She, we... Both did our PhDs together in the UK, and she at the time had just started a job as a medical writer. So I heard all about that and thought that sounds like a great combination. You know, use of my medical uh, sort of background knowledge combined with writing, which I knew I'd always enjoyed. So I applied for several jobs and eventually got an opportunity with the company that's now called Ashfield. They're part of the Big Enizio Group. So I moved back to the UK to work for them and they were actually one of the very first agencies to run like internal training programs. So I started there with alongside several other trainee writers and we all did an intensive like four-week training course. We actually spent some of the time we lived, we stayed on a farm for some reason (laughs) which was close to the the office where, oh, wow. they, where they were doing the training Exciting, a little bit yeah. sinister. <laughs> so we were completely immersed in the training for the first four weeks, and it wasn't until we completed that training that we could actually sort of be placed into accounts. So they were quite, I think, ahead of the time, really, and I was really grateful for mm-hmm. the opportunity to have such in-depth training. I think that's made such a difference to my career long term, really. Mm-hmm. So yes, I stayed there. My first up research was in type 2 diabetes. So I was placed into diabetes accounts, which I think really helped again to sort of settle me in. I knew that therapy area quite well. So I could focus on honing the writing mm-hmm. skills, figuring out how the agency worked. So I stayed there for several years. I felt that I wanted maybe a little bit Faster career progression. So I started to look for other things and I wanted to move as well to a different part of the country. So then I started a job at a very small agency. There was only eight people working there at the time. And I was one of only two writers. The other writer there was kind of very junior. So I came in as the senior writer. Mm -hmm. And on reflection, this is the kind of environment where I really work best, I think where you know nothing's in place, everything's new, and you're figuring out, you know, how things work, how things should work. So I stayed there at that agency for um almost ten years actually. I sort of I was always the most senior writer there. I led the team. We grew from two of us up to about thirteen in the team and I put all the sort of processes in place. I was the lead writer on a lot of accounts, did all of the training there for, for the other writers as well. So that really uh, gave me the opportunity to sort of explore this love that I had for training other people, really, sharing my knowledge. After I'd been there for ten, almost 10 years, I just needed another challenge, really. As I say, I'd always enjoyed training other writers, so I decided, you know, let's find out if I could do that on a larger scale, not with a team – from one agency, but, you know, with writers from anywhere, really. So that's when I branched out and started freelancing, building up mentoring sort of as a side gig, if you like, for a few years. But now that's my full, almost my full time job now.
0: Well, we definitely want to come back to the mentoring that you do and how you do it. But I wanted to dig into a couple of things that you said at the beginning about the first company that you went to being unusual in providing let's call it in service mm. training. Is that still the case? Now I know we're talking about the UK and we're talking about presumably a Medcoms agency. Yes. And yeah. correct me if I'm in if I'm wrong there.
1: Yes. So it was yes, it's a Medcoms agency. And so this is going back twenty years. They they already had this sort of really detailed training program in place. And I Get the impression I was new to Medcoms, but I think they were one of the only agencies doing it at that time. Whereas now I think mm. it's more commonplace. I'm sure we'll talk in the, the course of the interview about, you know, the complex nature of the medical writing role now. And I think agencies have realised that we need, you know, a, quite a, a foundation of skills and knowledge before we can actually hit the ground running on client accounts. So yes, it's very different now.
0: So kind of relatively new medical writers to the field should if certainly if they're in the UK context and they are moving into some kind of agency, you know, workplace, they should anticipate, they should have some expectation of internal training. And that is what I'm hearing from you is potentially one of the questions they should ask at that sort of interview stage in terms of how much support and training they're gonna get. Yeah. On the on the job.
1: Absolutely. And I think it varies. Because some agencies, I've, I've talked to agencies that do training for up to a year. Uh, so writers won't be fully on client billable work for a whole year uh, while they get those skills in place. Whereas there are other smaller agencies. Wow. Yeah, there are other smaller agencies that don't yet have training in place. And of course, that's how I'm speaking to them, because they'll come to me and say, you know, can you help us with training? a very small team, maybe they only have two or three or four writers. But with the more established, larger agencies, I think training on entry level is is definitely become commonplace.
0: So let's talk about that you're using the word agencies. And I think, you know, we often mean different things when we talk about agencies. I hear, so I am you know, almost exclusively in the continuing medical education Mm -hmm. space, in the accredited medical Mm -hmm. education space in the U.S. And I do sometimes hear writers who are relatively new to this specialty talk about agencies, but they're not talking about agencies in the way that you're talking about uh, agencies. So can you share for us what you mean when you are talking about MedCom's agencies in the U.K. context? Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. So my experience has been that they are, again, varying in size, organisations varying size, but essentially they provide a service for a client and most usually more than one client. And these clients, again, in my experience, have been pharmaceutical companies. So the agency staff will be working on lots of different accounts for lots of different clients. Sometimes the agencies are kind of organized in teams or pods. I think is the terminology that's being used, and you get groups of people who are supporting certain clients. The nature of the work, the fact that writers will be sort of serving different clients, this is why time management it often comes up as a key part of the medical writer's role because often you'll be working on several different projects running in parallel and you have to figure out, you know, which is a priority, how are we going to juggle the deadlines? And it's also, I guess, links into medical writers having to keep track of their time as well. So being very aware of how much time you've spent on, for example, a meeting with GSK versus in the afternoon you might be working on um a publication for takeda or something like that, you know, so you are chopping and changing quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I personally really like that way of working, it can get hectic, but it's interesting, and it's varied. I like that sort of fast paced, you're not working on any project for too long, typically. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that writers going into the agency environment need to be somewhat aware of as well, if they're not comfortable with working in that sort of fast paced, high pressure, let's face it, in some cases, it can be quite high pressure, then, you know, the agency environment might not be right for them.
0: And what type of projects are writers typically working on when they're working in that agency environment Mm. and working across different types of accounts?
1: Yeah, so the agency that I worked for for as I say over 10 years we did a lot of meetings because we had a sort of dedicated uh, logistics team who were really really excellent at you know organizing all of the travel and meeting setup and all the audio visual and everything so we did a lot of meetings some of them were small like really focused advisory board meetings where the pharmaceutical company will convene experts on a particular topic to ask their opinions and on various topics like anything from clinical trial design to analysing data that have come out of a trial. Sometimes they'll be much less focused and it might be just to gain insights into how a particular therapy area or treatment is administered in the real world, you know, in different, different areas of the world. So that's on the smaller side of meetings. The bigger side, I think the biggest meeting that I ever worked on would involved twenty-two presentations from lots of different speakers. It was over two days. You know, it had all the sort of lighting and stage management and everything. And interestingly, it was a very educational, sort of balanced meeting. I think the client's brand name or product name was mentioned once or twice during the entire two days so it was very educational and we found some really cutting edge speakers as well that were doing you know quite new things with patients so that's some of my experience I think as well there were less what I call creative projects as well like publications you know which are very data heavy and purely sort of writing Mm -hmm. dealing with data editing looking through journal guidelines, things like that. So I do think that there is a huge scope in the agency world. There's a huge scope of, of different types of projects that are, that are available. And, you know, it's up to the writer and the team that they work in to figure out which projects they really enjoy and where their skill set fits best.
0: And how does that translate into or align with you know, one of the things that you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation was the different roles and perhaps the many hats that medical Mm. writers, you know, sometimes have to wear depending on the size and type of agency that they might be working in. What are some of these roles? And how do you, well, just ask one question at a time. What are some of these roles?
1: (laughs) Certainly in the 16, 17 years or so that I've being a a medical writer, I think the role has become very broad, very interesting, but also very demanding. As a freelancer, I've worked with different teams in different sized agencies and I'm always so impressed with, you know, the things that these writers are coming up with. Some writers have really, really advanced almost design graphic design knowledge you know being able to take the understand for example the content of the clinical trial and translate that into like a really sophisticated infographic I think that's in awe of the writers who can do that who can combine so many different things and produce something really impressive I think there's a lot more uh sort of compliance has crept into the role as well with the advent of all these approval systems. And I think it's needed, you know, it definitely organises things from the client's point of view so that they have everything that they need to to perform a formalised review and sign off the content so that it's all, you know, meeting their high standards of scientific and editorial accuracy. But from the writing team's point of view, that I think, sucks up a lot of resource now, uploading materials and source references into these approval systems. Yeah, yeah. so there's a lot
0: going on. (laughs) And so there is a lot going on. And so that makes me curious then about how you approach your coaching and mentoring when you're working with, you know, medical writers Mm -hmm. who are new to the field. And maybe you could start talking a little bit first about how, you know, what type of writers you're working with? Are you writing with individuals who come to you for mentoring? Or are you working with? I think you mentioned you know earlier smaller agencies who need the kind of onboarding support mm. that you provide. You know, it sounds like there's two different ways at least that you're working with. Clients. That's
1: it. Yes, it's a bit of both, really. And uh, since becoming a mentor, I have been. I've become much more aware of the breadth of what medical writers do now. You know, I think I was I had a good idea of the different things that were going on around medcoms, but I honestly had no idea about regulatory writing. I'm learning more about that, but that's something that I have personally no experience with. I think there's a lot of writers like CME, uh I didn't really know much about that either. So I'm learning more about that. I think it's fascinating the different types of, of writing that goes on around the world so the way i approach it obviously i can't always comment on the specifics of the skills that each writer needs to have to meet their clients requirements but i did feel when i was you know in leading a team in an agency trying to find training for my team to to build their own skills i always felt that when i searched for training for medical writers it was about writing you know, it was about grammar and sentence structure and paragraphs and things like that. And that's often not what writers actually need. So I came up with this five pillars of medical writing concept, which I now use in everything, because I think this, to me, describes the breadth of the medical writing role, and it can be applied to you know, whether you're a regulatory writer or a more creative writer, I think it still applies. And the five pillars that I came up with are technical writing. So that encompasses, you know, the writing, how to write, how to use mm-hmm. punctuation and grammar and set structure your sentences, and even down to the sort of granular level, how to spell different words, whether it's US, UK English, all these sorts of things. So that all is encompassed in that first pillar the second pillar i call a scientific understanding and this is how to you know understand the source material again whether that's complex clinical trial data or more general therapy area research there has to be some level of scientific understanding so that's the second pillar the third I called agency skills because, again, at the time I was focused on sort of medical writers in agencies, but essentially that's the soft skills that you need, you know, like being able to communicate with the project team and the client, being able to manage your own time as well as the, the time of the project that you're working in. And then as we become more advanced, you can think about leadership skills and delegation skills under that agency skills pillar as well. The fourth one I call storytelling, because again, I noticed that different writers are using very different modes of storytelling to get their information across. And so if you're a regulatory writer, Mm -hmm. your mode of storytelling might be, you know, to understand the templates that you need to use, the submission documents, the informed consent forms, and so on. Whereas for a writer like myself, for example, I was using a lot of PowerPoint, So my mode of storytelling was, yeah, using a lot of PowerPoint, using very sort of persuasive structures to tell the story, whereas a third type might be a publications writer. They're using that typical IMRAD format, Not perhaps not so much creativity is required, but they'll need to know, you know, they'd have to be an expert in publications. And then the fifth pillar I called strategic thinking. And this one was probably the one, shall I or shan't I include this? Because at a junior level, you might think, all right, do you really need to be able to think strategically? But I think if you build that strategic thinking in element in right from the start of your sort of journey into medical writing, then it becomes easier. You're always thinking about the big picture and who's the end user who's going to benefit from the piece of work that I'm working on. Because I often found that writers would get to kind of a senior medical writer level and then their manager would say, well, you need to think more strategically. And they'd be like, well, what does that mean? (laughs) I don't know how to think strategically (laughs) when really they might have already been doing it. So, yes, that's the five pillars. There's, I think, you have to have a kind of core competency across all of those five. But then once you have that beyond entry level you can specialize in each one and kind of create your own version of medical writing really.
0: I love these pillars I love the idea that you are setting your kind of baselining competencies for you know the medical writers that you're training and that you're working with. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. Where do you find, where do you find most of the gaps? You know, when you're thinking about these five pillars and you're working with people, where are you seeing, you know, the, the largest weaknesses? Yeah.
1: Well, I think the good thing about medical writing is that when people start, everyone has their own baseline. So if I think about a medic or perhaps somebody who's previously worked for a pharma company, they might actually be quite strong in the strategic thinking pillar and the scientific understanding pillar, mm-hmm. but they might be quite weak on, say, technical writing. They've probably done lots of writing, but they have no idea of the level of detail and you know the (laughs) do you use an n-rule or an m-rule those kinds of nitty-gritty that we have to worry about as medical writers whereas somebody else maybe a PhD student they've done a lot of writing they've just probably just written their thesis so they're actually quite strong on the technical writing pillar they might be less let's say their weaknesses might be in the agency skills you know going from that Environment where mm. you're directing your own work, a very, very targeted piece of research to then jumping into an agency where everyone's demanding things from you and you're working on five different things at once. So it definitely varies from person to person. I think the main places where I'm focusing as a mentor for sort of entry level people, trying to get people up to the standard where they can pass a writing test. Usually technical writing and scientific understanding, just being able to figure out mm-hmm. what are the information what's the information that I need to know about a, a clinical trial. So
0: let's talk about the writing test. Now in continuing medical education, the writing test isn't really part of you know how a writer might be recruited or interviewed for either employment or a freelance kind of writing position. Mm-hmm. And in, in continuing education, certainly in the US, the majority of content work is actually handled by freelance medical writers. Yes. So I think that's quite different mm-hmm. than other parts of medical writing. And obviously, accredited continuing education uh, in the US is very different from what we see in the UK and Europe anyway. And we did, we had Eugene Posniak come on the podcast. Last season, uh, to talk about how the accreditation landscape is changing Mm. in in Europe and and the UK. So that idea of the kind of medical test, medical writing test, is a little unusual in this particular specialty, but it's it's widespread in other medical writing specialties. So can you talk us through what a medical writing test? you know, what it involves and what new to the field medical writers would have to think about in order to prepare themselves for a medical writing test? That was a very long question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a significant sort of hurdle to be able to overcome these days. As I spoke about the five pillars, I do think there's kind of a baseline Mm. that you need to hit to be able to firstly pass the writing test, but then obviously get a job. And start working as a medical writer, because if you don't have that, you can find yourself in deep water very quickly, unfortunately. So the writing Mm. test has kind of evolved for as a way for agencies to assess those competencies. And the idea is not that you should, you know, be a medical writer already, because obviously how can you? That's a that's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but they want to make sure that you have the writing skills, you know, perhaps not up to the level of detail or the the high quality that you'd have as a trained writer, but still you have to have a baseline sort of writing ability there and also be able to take a research paper and pull out some of the right information. So again, Mm. even during the few years that I've become a mentor, I have seen these tests evolve They are quite complex, some of them. Often the writers are asked to do like two or three different things, like summarize a research paper, create a slide presentation, write an abstract. So they're not small tasks. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they're asked to do them actually on site in the interview as well. So they might be given typically 30 minutes to two hours to do something actually on site. And that is testing your ability somewhat to work under pressure. I don't know how I would have fared in that situation, honestly. I think, uh, you know, 20 years ago as a new writer, I think the nerves of the interview would have been enough, let alone adding a writing test. But essentially, yeah, what I would say to writers who are, or aspiring medical writers, it's not supposed to be perfect. So you can do your best. What I'm trying to do with some of the resources that I've put out there is to give people an idea of what to expect and what a past might look like. Because to go into it blind, I think, you know, I've definitely come across writers who have done five, six, even more tests, and they really don't know where they're going wrong. And it's very sort of demoralizing mm. for them. So if I can, you know, have a mentoring session or take them through my course and just, give them all right you need to sort of pay a bit more attention to detail here or read up a bit about how clinical trials are conducted then you know that can open them up to more success in the writing test
0: yeah no i i it's certainly something i hear about from not so much obviously the the new to the field writers that i mm-hmm. work with in continuing medical education but some will you know on linkedin and various yeah. Other places, you know, I, I see people talking about the writing test and, and as you put it, how demoralizing it can be. And I'm glad you mentioned you don't know how you would have fared if, or how you might fare now, because as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, I, I don't think I'd pass a writing test, <laughs> <laughs> which is a little bit, a little bit worrying. But having heard from some writers how challenging and technically nitty gritty such a writing test can be. If you don't have examples, if you haven't had practice Mm. and opportunities to kind of think ahead of time, I can only imagine how challenging this is. So I'm really excited that you provide resources and support for people who need to prepare for these types of, of writing tests. I'm conscious of our Time. One of the things that we haven't talked about, of course, is the the perpetual elephant in the room at the moment <laughs> for just about uh, every type of writer, which is artificial intelligence. And and one of our listeners, Maj Yajani or uh, Yagani, uh, asked the question. The question is about the difference between modern versus traditional medical writing. Mm-hmm. And how the field is keeping up with changes, particularly in relation to artificial intelligence. So I'm kind of curious, you know, from your perspective and the kind of work that you do, Mm. where are you seeing AI begin to kind of creep into conversation and work? And what's the mood?
1: Yeah. So it's not my specialty at all. I've looked into, you know, I've dabbled with chat GPT and this kind of thing. If I'm having a bit of a dull, you know, one of those afternoons where I'm just staring at sentences and not getting anywhere, I've used it to try and, you know, stimulate a few ideas. I've also seen people use it to do things like create search strings if they want to do a literature review. So that's my extent of, of using AI, honestly uh i've also seen you know where i've been helping people with sort of job searches as well i've started to see roles that mention ai sort of in the job title which i think is quite interesting mm-hmm. so like whole i guess task forces who or I- individuals who are set up to explore how ai could be used in in our field so I don't know if I have much to add at this point. I'm certainly going to be doing some training of my own to find out, you know, how it can be used. I think it's really fascinating to think about why people are so hyped up about it. Like what what does it promise for writers? Does it promise mm. like time saving? Because that I think we can use it as a tool to save time and do things quicker. Than, than the human brain can do to some extent. Do people think that it's going to allow us to do more than what the human brain can do? I guess that, that's quite exciting. But I think what we're all quite cautious of is, will it get to a point where, say, somebody in medical affairs wants a literature review done, do they plug it into AI and then not even come to a med- for a medical writing support at all? and i can see that could be mm. possible honestly so i i don't know how it's going to evolve what regulations need to be put in place i think it's all going <laughs> to
0: yeah i have imagined that pharma clients are likely to be much more cautious yeah. about ai than perhaps yeah. you know writers and and other people with different roles and responsibilities because of you know data privacy and and those sorts of concerns is this something that you're hearing among your
1: clients yeah i think there's still a concern about you know how accurate these things are i think there is as well a bit of a attitude that using it is still a form of like cheating <laughs> if you like you know is it if you <laughs> use it to create content is it going to be accurate you know is it just been done as a shortcut i don't know I don't know, really. I think there's a whole range of attitudes out there. Some are very sceptical. Some are very open to, to using it and experimenting. So,
0: yeah. And we're still at the very beginning of the introduction of this particular mm. thing to to all sorts of work, all sorts of work, not just just medical writing. So it's interesting that there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of discussion. We see in in the publishing world some attempts to kind of create parameters Mm -hmm. around, you know, how and when uh, AI can be used, but I think a lot of us are still kind of trying to figure out what those parameters might look Mm -hmm. like in, uh, certainly in CME and it sounds like other parts of medical writing as well. Just to kind of wrap up, Sarah, what would you say to you know, somebody from a research or a science or an academic background who is looking at medical writing now as, you know, a potential profession Mm. or, or occupation. One of the things you mentioned earlier was that, you know, when you started out, it seemed, and certainly when I started out as well, it seemed to be the case that people moved into freelance work after working maybe on the agency side or in some other you know formal organization, mm. one of the things I'm seeing now, and I'm interested if you're seeing this as well, is that there are a lot of people who are jumping to freelance from a clinical background or from an academic background, which actually is what i did i I had no agency or industry experience, but at the time you know twenty years ago, that was unusual. Mm. I think we're seeing a lot more people now thinking about getting into freelance medical writing without that agency or industry experience. Yes. Are you seeing that? What do you make of that? And how does that change the kind of coaching and support that people need?
1: Yes, I am. I am seeing that. I think people are after flexibility and a different way of working, really. Uh I think especially mm-hmm. When I talk to my daughter who's 14, I can see that their generation are not looking to go to university and get a job. (laughs) You know, people want different ways to make money these days. So I think there's a lot of interest in freelance. And I guess that is a significant portion of what I do is to work with people who want to have that freelance career, but I think they don't yet understand what you know those baseline competencies that we talked about earlier actually what they really are so Mm -hmm. that's some of the training and mentoring that I do is to try and sometimes work with them on projects and you know basically show them what what it looks like to get your first client to track your time to work efficiently and not get bogged down in everything about the therapy area you know what what a first draft should look mm-hmm. like all of these different things because i think without that understanding you're very vulnerable you can again you can put yourself forward thinking i i can do this and it may depending on the client go well and it may not <laughs> so
0: yeah it's very difficult to see what position you might take in the field when you don't actually know what the field looks yeah. like yeah And so having a guide such as yourself to kind of shepherd you through some of that and get you to a place where you can stand on your own feet Mm. and you can you can see what's on the horizon and figure out the direction that you want to go in is incredibly helpful. Mm. Sarah, where can people find you?
1: I do a lot of posting on LinkedIn. That's how I've basically built my business is through LinkedIn. Or my website is greenpensolutions.com. There's a lot of information and links to the resources that I provide on there as well.
0: Excellent. We'll make sure that all that information is in the show notes so that people can get access to that and connect with you.
1: Okay.
0: Any final thoughts that you want to share with listeners before we wrap up?
1: No, actually, just to come back to that last point that we were talking about, there's a lot of talk out there about, you know, finding your niche. I think you mentioned that before as well.
0: Mm.
1: And what does that mean for especially people who are putting themselves out there as freelancers? I definitely encourage people to do that. And I sort of do that through a strength-based approach. Mm looking at the skills and experience. Oh, like Strength or something like that? Yes. Yeah. Something like that. A much sort of more streamlined model of that, but essentially looking at the skills and experience that they have to date, you know, whether they've come from a clinical background or research. And it's funny, I was talking to a coaching group earlier. Some people were saying, oh, I don't have a PhD. I don't have this and that. And I said, the question that you really need to think about is what can you do for a potential client today? And that's really, I think what, yes, love yeah, it. what everyone needs to focus on. Don't worry how you got here. What's your niche? What could you do for a client today? So.
0: I I love that advice. And here's why, because the people we see moving into medical writing are, you know, we touched on this a little bit, are, they're often people with a science background with a research background PhDs or they've been academics or they've been clinicians these are heavy duty professionals with a ton of skills (laughs) that they already have but as soon as you move out of one professional context into another you that self doubt starts to Mm -hmm. creep in and uh, you know I see this time time and again and and My starting point with people I work with is, as you've just described, just taking a step back and taking inventory Mm -hmm. of the skills that you currently have. That provides such a great foundation for moving into whatever branch or specialty of medical Mm -hmm. writing that you're, that you're interested in. Yeah. So it's really heartening to, to hear that.
1: Yeah. I think it's very easy to focus on the things that you haven't done and the skills that you haven't, you know, had. Yes. But when I look at somebody coming, say, from a clinical background, I see, you know, having been a sort of team leader and, and an experienced writer and what the clients want, I can see, all right, you've got a ton of experience, like actually talking to patients and managing this condition that I as a writer will never have. So that brings a lot to the role. So,
0: yeah. Sarah Nelson, guide, coach, mentor, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Right Medicine.
1: Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write, W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Right Medicine newsletter, where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.